Hey, Amen. Why don't you grab your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 3. I'm about to attempt the impossible. I can talk fast, so we'll see what happens. But so, so we sing the song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. We, we talk about fixing our eyes on Christ. I mean, I'm not going to preach last week's message. I don't have the time even to spend a lot of time looking at it. But, but, but what I want to do is just remind you that what, what, what Paul is doing here in the book of Colossians is saying, hey, listen, if you've been risen with Christ, that means you've yielded to Christ's call on your life. You understand that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. So, so if you've been risen with Christ, you've trusted in Him, you're leaning on Him and Him alone to, to gain you peace and acceptance in God's eyes. If you've been risen with Christ then, and he kind of walks through and says, there are these things that are going to happen. And primarily it's going to look like this. You're going to set your heart on things above. You're going to set your mind on things above. You're not going to focus on everything else around down here. And, and, and as Paul kind of jumps into this, the, the question that you're about to be asked this morning is, how seriously do you take that? How seriously do you believe that you have been called to set your focus on the things of Christ and not anything else around you? Because where that gets tested, very rarely is it in a time that calls for like a a heroic response where you can be like super Christian and steal the day. Instead, usually the time that you can demonstrate if your eyes are fixed on Christ are in the beautifully boring moments of being at home with your family which those are always peaceful. <laughs> wow, I'm sorry, I guess I lied. I don't know. <laughs> so so you, you remember, what I'm going to do that's going to be nearly impossible is I'm about to preach a four-week series in about 35 minutes, um, which means I'm not going to dive into every little nuance and aspect of what it means for wives to submit to their husbands or husbands to love their wives, or children to obey their parents, or parents not to provoke their children to wrath. So I'm not going to be able to get into every single nuance, which means you may have a lot of questions, you may actually disagree with some of the things I say, and so I'm going to encourage you, feel free to send me an email after this morning. My email address is mandries at utown.org, okay? So you just pass that along, we'll be happy to get to your, your concerns. Um, <laughs> You go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, and you got Jesus, or God creating everything, and Jesus being the agent of creation. Everything is created wonderful and perfect, and it's good. The only time that something is said to be not good is when, when God looks at Adam, who's alone, and he says, it is not good that man's alone. And that, that remains true today. It's not good that man be alone, okay? So, so then God says, I will make him a helper that, that, that will come alongside him, and he puts Adam to a deep sleep. You remember how that goes. He takes out the rib, creates Eve, and all of this wonderful stuff is happening, and then Adam and Eve are left in the garden, and God says, you can do whatever you want. This place is yours. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's amazing. You can, you can play. You can dance. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I'll just leave that over there. You can eat anything except one tree. You don't eat one tree. That's it, one tree. Leave it alone. And Satan comes and says, what? He said you can't eat from the one tree, which is amazing. He leaves out that God said you could do everything else. He said you can't eat. You know why? Because God's holding out on you. He knows how good that fruit is. And Adam and Eve are deceived. And the fall occurs. It breaks the perfect union between God and humankind. And now... 
And now there's results of the fall. And you get to Genesis 3 as God lays out the results of the, the fall. And, 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 and a couple of the things that are said, Genesis 3.16, are, are very clearly results of, of the fall. It says there's pain in childbirth. I've never experienced it. I'm assuming that's true. Okay? It says there's pain. But, but, but understand this. Childbirth isn't a result of the fall. It's just the pain associated with it is now. And for Adam, he's going to work, and it's going to be difficult to work because there's going to be thorns and thistles that are going to grow up. And it's going to be labor-intensive. Now, please remember, work is not a result of the fall. When God created man and woman and left them in the garden, he left them there to cultivate the garden. That's work. But what's a result of the fall is the, the difficulty in work and the pain in work. And when it comes to the family, man, let's just say the honeymoon is over. Genesis 3.16 makes it abundantly clear that the honeymoon is over. Paradise has been lost. The, the wife is going to be tempted to find ways to try to usurp the, the husband's leadership, and the husband is going to deal with that attempt on her behalf with either passivity or tyrannical leadership. I mean, you, you look at our culture today, and even as marriage is spoken of, it's, talking, it's talked like it's a hostile takeover attempt, right? The wife, you look at the wife, I'm trying to change him, he just won't change, and the poor dude's like, I'm, I'm just trying to get my way and get her to be quiet so I can go hang out with the boys and golf or something. It's this, this war that has occurred now in the home. And Paul says, this ought not to be. If you're risen with Christ and your heart is fixed on heaven, if you're setting your affections on heaven, if you're setting your gaze on Jesus, if you're fixated on Jesus and Jesus alone, the way you deal with people is not going to be like it's a battlefield. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, therefore, if you have been risen with Christ, if you have set your heart on things above, if you have, are seeking the things above, therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, you will put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You'll bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How in the world do we do that in marriage? Well, Paul tells us in our first verse of our text today, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says this, wives, submit to your husbands, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. So, let's just be clear. This one ain't popular. For a lot of reasons. And I, I want to deal with some of the reasons this morning in the time that I have, which isn't much. So, uh, admittedly, I'm not spending a ton of time on this. But part of it is because we just under, misunderstand what submission looks like and what it means. So, so, let me walk through it. The very first thing I want to do is talk to you about what submission isn't. And the very first thing in that list is this. Submission is not a command to put up with abuse. Period. I don't know that I could be any more clear. Nowhere in Scripture does it give a husband the right to be abusive to his wife. Period. Whether that be emotional, physical, or sexual, it doesn't matter. Abuse is sin. So where would I stand if a wife came to me and said her husband was abusing her? Quite simply, let's call the authorities. It, there's no other answer. 
The problem is, is that as we hear this verse, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, it's become um, 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 tagged with, oh, so those are the people who think it's okay for a husband to mistreat his wife. Absolutely not. So it's not a command to put up with abuse. It's not, submission is not inferiority. Men and women have been created equal in the image of God, equal in the mandate of God to, to, to work the garden, to serve each other. And, and, and I think the problem is, is we hear Genesis chapter 2 where God says, I, we need, God, it's not good that he's alone, so I'm going to create him a helper. And the problem is, is we misdefine the word helper. Oh, so she's just going to come alongside and do the little things. Uh, no. Genesis 2, in the use of the word helper, is the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament for military reinforcements. In other words, the battle is lost if they don't show up. It's the same word that's actually used for God who shows up in a battle and wins the battle. He is their helper. The word is Ezer. Ebenezer. Not Scrooge. Different guy. But Ebenezer is the sign of victory. When, when my help comes, it's over. With victory's done. It's won. So it's not inferiority. Here's, a, here's another picture of it. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. It says that Christ submitted himself and humbled himself by becoming obedient. Um, last time I checked, Jesus is not inferior. Submission is not inferiority. Submission is not forced upon you. Submit yourselves to your husbands. The husband is never told to command the wife to submit to him. It's this wonderful thing. My wife and I did our pre-marriage counseling, and the one who counseled us made it very clear to us. Here's, it was, you understand Ephesians chapter 5, submit uh, to your husbands and love your wives. What he, he said to us is this. Here, here's the deal. Mind your own business. This, this is not a deal for the husband to get involved. This is, this is the deal for the, the wife to, it's almost like mandatory volunteerism. Does that make sense? It's crazy as it is. Like nobody's standing over you like, you need to do this. Jesus. It's like, no, I need to do this. Submit yourselves. And, and please understand, uh, submission is not to be confused with obedience. It's not that the wife needs to obey the husband. You're not commanded to do that. Submission is not chauvinistic. The reality is, he says, you, you submit yourselves to your own husband, not to men. It's within the relationship of your marriage. Submission does not mean silence. I think too often women hear, I need to submit to my husband, therefore I just need to be the, the little wallflower who stands there and doesn't say anything. Absolutely not. Submission doesn't mean that you lose your personality in your husband's personality. We need your personality. As a husband, I need the perspective and the opinion and the expertise and the, the wisdom of my wife. I've only got, and on a good day, I've got 180 degrees of perspective. On most days, I'm at about 2%. My wife's got the rest of it. I need her perspective. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 26 says that when the wife speaks, her mouth speaks wisdom and loving instruction is in her tongue. So submission is not... Silence. What is submission? Submission is humble, meek behaviors and attitudes that puts others first. Let me define one key word in there. Humble and meek. Meek is a word that we don't quite understand. Let me, let me help you understand what the word meek means. I think we have an American definition. Meekness is, being, is, is having the ability or strength to do something and yet willingly holding back. 
Meekness is myself wrestling with my kids, who now this doesn't really work a whole lot because they're a little bigger now, but when they were little, wrestling on the floor with the kids and knowing without a question, I grew up watching wrestling, I could superfly snooker this kid in a moment and put him out of his misery and win the victory. But in weakness, in meekness, not weakness, in meekness, boy, that was a slip, faux pas. In meekness, I willingly don't do that, although I could. Wives, in sincerity, you absolutely could run ahead of most of us husbands. <laughs> and yet, in you, there is a humility and a willingness to not do that. So let me read the def- definition again, and then, and then make sure you see it. It's humble, meek behaviors and attitudes that puts other people's first. You know, a lot like this word, like, I don't know, love. See, see the idea is, you look at Ephesians 5, you see submission pictured as respect. He gets the end and says, here's the conclusion of, of all of this husband-wife talk. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. So, so that way your words and your actions are, are demonstrating a respect for your husbands. It's not a picture of, of you falling for the idea that this is a hostile takeover, that you need to, to win this battle. It's a picture of friendship. Submission is friendship. Look at Titus chapter 2. It uses the word, and it's funny, it's, it's hidden in our English language, go figure, but it talks about how the young women are to love their husbands, and that word love is philandro, which is to, a compound word that's phileo, which is brotherly love, and andro, your husband. That, that brotherly love is a picture of friendship, hanging out together, enjoying each other's company, enjoying companionship, so it's that picture of friendship with each other. Submission is doing and speaking good. Let's be honest. When we speak, we can do immeasurable harm to our spouse. And, and, it's, and it's a stereotype. The stereotype is that, that women are much quicker with their wit, and they're able to use that wit in a way to both build up and to tear down. Now, we're going to talk about this this summer as we go through Proverbs, but there's a couple of verses in Proverbs that talk very specifically about that, aren't there? Are you aware that there's a verse in Proverbs that says that it'd be better for a husband to sit on the top of his house away from his wife than to put up with her continual dripping of words? So if you drive home, you see a boy up on his house playing cards, I'm like, what up, bro? Want to join me? Trust me. It's better than being in there right now. <laughs> it's a picture of the power of the tongue, but, but in, in submission, the wife understands the power and she uses it to respect, to build up to encourage his gentle, loving leadership, which we'll talk about in a minute. So specifically, Frank, what does it look like? I mean, so does it mean that I have dinner on the table? No, no, okay, hold on, stop. Stop trying to get into specifics. Here's an illustration that I want to use that may help you. If I'm going to give you $100, well, then we would be living in a parallel universe, there's no question. But if I was to give you $100 and say, listen, how do you want it? Do you, do you want it in check? Do you want a gift card? Do you want, like, cash money? Do you want coins? How would you like me to give you $100? Well, you know, in all honesty, it doesn't matter. It's all $100. I'll take whatever you want to give me, honestly. I'll take it. But in Scripture, as it walks through the topic of submission, it never gives you specifics. And I think there's a reason for that, because Scripture is written for all time and for all cultures. And so what submission looked like back in Paul's day may look a little different right now. What submission and a submissive spirit in my home may not be a submissive spirit in your home. There may be more to it. So here's the million-dollar question, okay? And again, I'm blowing through this, so I have one more question to answer, and then I'm moving on to husbands. So praise God, this is the way to preach on submission. (laughs) 
seven minutes and go. Um, here's the million dollar question. Why do men get to be the leaders? I have no idea. The easy answer. I don't know. Let, let me counter with another question. Why was it that Jesus, the Son of God, person of the Trinity, was the one of the three who submitted himself? I don't know. But what I do know is I look at what Jesus did, I don't look at his submission as weakness. I look at his submission as greatness. So, how, how does a family, how does a home look if your eyes are fixed on Christ? It looks like biblical submission. The, the second one is the next verse, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter towards them. So, so what is he saying here? I think sometimes we just assume we know what the definition of this is. Oh, it's just supposed to be, no, let me, let's walk through it though. Husbands, love your wives. The idea of that is maintain the habit of loving them. Make it your practice. Make it your priority. Your life, husbands, is to be wrapped up in meeting the needs of your wife. Boys, you heard that, right? Young men who aren't married, you heard that, right? This is your responsibility with a young lady who may come into your life at some point. Your responsibility is to have your life wrapped up in meeting her needs. I remember sitting at a desk one day telling somebody that this is what it means. And, and it was a young married couple. And his response to me actually almost floored me. Because his response was, yes, I'm supposed to meet her needs. But not all of her wants. You're a fool. She's right there. No, you know, the real answer to that is, no, no, absolutely. But in love, you will work to provide for her wants. That's love. He, he says, don't, make sure you love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Some versions actually translate that word harsh, but I, but I think bitter is a better translation because here's the reality, that there are times, okay, this is just reality, there are times within the relationship that men, she's gonna tick you off. Reality. It happens. He said, but you as the leader, as the loving, submissive, servant leader, you will not allow that to fester in you and to become a source of bitterness. He says, so what you're going to do in the middle of that is you're going to love her. Now, it's funny because I think too often in American culture, we define love as an emotion. You can't command an emotion. Love her. Okay. Boy, I love you. It's an action. It's an aggressive action, man. And, and, and I, as much as I would love to say that in your marriage, in young married people, I would love to say, hey, praise God, because you're so in love with each other and romance is so good. Romance is going to sustain you through 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Romance cannot sustain your marriage. It is way easier to be romantically in love with each other when you don't live together. I should probably keep moving. Got a little, that was a weird reaction, like the ripple started through here. All right. <laughs> but there, there, there's, and here's the point of that bitterness thing. There is no action, there is no attitude, there are no words that a wife can use that releases the husband from his absolute obligation to love her at all times. There's nothing she does that frees you up, men, to pout and grumble or move into a silent rage or even an active rage. You're to dedicate your life to meeting the needs of your 
wife. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter toward them. We're told elsewhere that this is how a husband is to love his wife, like Jesus loved the church. Great. That's a high bar. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and denied what was justly his in order to save his church. Men, you are to love your wife like that. You are to deny yourself what might justly be yours in order to serve your wife. How do you love your wife? You in pursuit just as Jesus pursued us. You are to be the one that pursues the relationship and companionship with your wife. Sacrifice. There's no question that Jesus sacrificed for his church. So husbands, the way you need to love your wives, or wife, we'll go singular, <laughs> whole different sermon. Um, the, <laughs> the way you're supposed to love your wife is, is, is that when your rights or legitimate rights or, or concerns come up, you need to be the first one who's willing to forego them for the good of your wife in serving her. You do understand this, right? Christ loved you not because you were lovable, He loved you and made you lovable. That's how you love your wife. You love your wife, 1 Peter tells us, in knowledge. That's where that old adage, men and women, who can understand them? That is not a valid complaint. That is a confession of guilt on the part of all husbands. Because we're commanded in 1 Peter to dwell with our wives in understanding. Women, who can understand them? (laughs) You. You only got to understand one. And if you have daughters, just pretend like you got to figure it out. Uh, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Just kidding. Talk about that in a minute, too. Because we're not all feeling guilty yet, so we're just going to bury it all in one shot. Um, when it comes to knowing and your wife and, and loving her in knowledge, it means knowing her needs, knowing her, her vulnerabilities, knowing her insecurities, and then sacrificing in order to care for her and protect her in the middle of those. Not knowing those things and using them as bullets in your gun. But knowing those and and serving her through those things. Okay, so specifically, what does it look like to love my wife? It's the same thing. God is not specific here because Scripture is true for all of time and all cultures. The way your wife receives signals of love may be different than the way my wife receives signals of love. Your responsibility is not to love your wife the way every other husband loves their wives. Your responsibility is to love your wife in such a way that her needs are cared for and she feels loved. If your eyes are fixed on Christ and you're not being carried away by the traditions of this world, then you're going to focus on what it is you can do to love your wife in a way that pleases God. All right, we survived that one. Let's take, let's take the foot off the gas pedal a little and make fun of our kids a little bit. All right, kids. There's a bunch of them here too. Woo-hoo. Lucky day for you. Verse 20, children. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So just to say the obvious, obey your parents in everything. You know what that means? Exactly, in everything. Um, The assumption there is parents have the best interest of their kids in mind. It goes back to what Jesus said, you know, what, what horrible parent when their kid's like, can I have a fish? Goes, sure, and hands them a rock. Okay, so, so he says, okay, that, that's not the parenting we're talking about here. We're talking about the, kid, the parent who would actually give their kid a fish if he asked for a fish, and if the kid asked for a rock, wouldn't give it to him. That's a parent that does those things. So this child is supposed to obey in everything. So what is obedience then? Obedience is an active response to what you hear, 
We're going to try something. I don't know if it's going to work, but it's worth a shot. You ready? Let's see if this works to help picture it for us. An active response to what you hear. That's obedience. You ready? There you go. Obedience. It's an active response. I was hoping it would work. I was going to be like, okay, never mind. Um, so obedience is that active response. It's, it's having to finish that. Or that's OCD. It's one of the two things. It's obedience, OCD. It kind of go hands in hand sometimes. Um, it, it, can be, um, it can be answering the door when somebody knocks on the door. It can be responding every time your cell phone makes another noise, right? You're obeying your cell phone. Use that one later, parents. You're welcome. So as obedience is this active response that a child is supposed to give upon hearing and understanding what a parent instructs. Um. 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a story about King Saul, who's instructed by God to go and wipe out the Amalekite camp completely. All of the animals, all of the people, just wipe it out. It was clear. The instruction was laid out with precision. Saul understood it. Saul went to the camp of the Amalekites, and he didn't obey. Now, as you read that story, it's very, there's a couple of things about that story that are really interesting. Like, when Samuel comes to the camp looking for Saul, after Saul had willingly disobeyed God's command, Samuel, the prophet, walks into Saul's camp to confront him on this. Saul sees Samuel coming from a distance. Saul runs to Samuel and is like, hey, how are you? I did everything you commanded. Now, does that not sound like what happens in our homes? When a parent comes home, the kid's like, oh, no. Oh, hey, how are you, mom? Did everything you asked, right? And Samuel begins to walk through the process with him, and he finds out that actually Saul didn't have all of the Amalekites wiped out. He actually kept all of the, the worthless animals, goats, sheep, and cattle. He kept King Agag alive. So, so here's the deal. But he wiped out all, I'm sorry, he kept all the valuable ones. He wiped out all the worthless ones. I think I said that backwards. The reality, so, so did he obey? I mean, he wiped out all the worthless ones. He wiped out at least 75% of the cattle. He killed all of the people, just kept the king. So, I mean, is partial obedience obedience in God's eyes? No. Saul continues, man, I had good reason though. I kept all the good cattle so that I could bring this wonderful sacrifice to God. Doesn't that make sense? Okay, so, so now let's answer the question. Then in your children, if they can give you a logical explanation as to why they disobeyed, does it make their disobedience okay? No. So then Saul continues, but listen, I sacrificed them. God would be happy with a sacrifice. And that's where you get every parent's favorite verse, but God would rather obedience than sacrifice. He had great motives. He wanted to honor God in these things. But Samuel says, no, having good motives never makes disobedience okay. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Because it makes your parents happy? No. Because it pleases God. See, I think sometimes what we've done is we've made this varsity level obedience and this junior varsity level obedience. Now, if I do these things as a good husband, I do these things as a good wife, then it pleases God. And then my children, if they do these things as children, they please me. No, 
No, this, this, this command from Paul to these people is, children, obey your parents, because this pleases God. This goes back to, so what if your kids' eyes are fixed on Jesus and nothing else? What if they've set their hearts on heaven? What if they've continue to set their minds on the things of Jesus? What if they continue to fixate on Jesus and they're running down this, this path and they refuse to look to either way? They're not going to get carried away by disobedience. Instead, they're going to do these things. What does it look like? It looks like a child who's obedient to their parents. Children, obey your parents. It's interesting that, that, that Paul kind of slides into the very next idea, still dealing with parenting now, very specifically. And I'm going to be honest with you. Because normally I lie to you. Um, although submission is an uncomfortable topic to talk about, and, and, and I always feel really guilty getting up here and talking about how husbands are supposed to love their lives because I feel like a hypocrite. And, and the, the children obey your parents, that one's somewhat common. Um, this last one is going to sting on every front. So I'm giving you that warning. Fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So, so obviously, as you look at this passage, Paul is addressing fathers. In this culture, fathers were the ones who were responsible to raise their children pretty much the whole time. Moms would be involved in it, but dads were the ones. This obviously applies to parents. So sorry, ladies, you're not off the hook. Parents. Don't exasperate your children. That means to frustrate your children, provoke your children. It means to, to irritate your children. We'll talk about that in a second. Do not do those things to your children so that they will not become discouraged. The idea there is lose heart so that they won't become um, just frustrated, just uh, apathetic. They don't become that kid who doesn't listen, talk, or do anything. So he says, do not exasperate your children. Now, first and foremost, it doesn't mean give your kid everything they want. And I'll talk about that in a second. There are times our children will be frustrated because we're not yielding to their sin nature. If that's the case, love them and they'll deal with it. Okay? How do we provoke our children? How do we exasperate our children? Let me run through a, a lengthy list for you. First of all, it's this. We don't make the transition that we should make from when they're little itty-bitties and we're working to modify their behavior to when they get into pre-adolescence and adolescence, we're supposed to be working on their heart. The problem is we're still working on their behavior when they're 12, 13, 14 years old. And, and, and that brings great frustration for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is this, what you are communicating to your child if you are continuing to do behavioral modification at that age, what you are communicating to them is what matters most to me has nothing to do with your heart, it has to do with how you behave in public. What, what, what matters most to me and to God is that you live like this and you don't do that. You don't speak like that. You don't dress like that. You don't act like that. You don't hang out with them. You don't do this. You pass this class. You make sure you turn in your paper. So behavioral modification. Now, I am not saying ignore behavior, but I'm saying you need to make the transition into working on the issues of the heart as well. So why, son or daughter, is it that you refuse to do your homework until five minutes before class. Okay, there's an issue of laziness in there, isn't there? Let's have to deal with that root issue. So you need to work on re reaching the heart. I would encourage you to, to pick up a book by Paul Tripp uh, that is called Reaching the Heart of Your Teen. Or Shepherding Your Child's Heart is the other one that he wrote. 
Those are wonderful books. I, I, I want, there's a couple cautions that I would throw at you in there is that if all you do is, is work on the heart and never deal with the behavior, then you're in trouble. Um, and I'll make comments about that here in a second. So that's one thing. We don't make the transition. How else do we exasperate our children? Fear-based parenting. And I don't mean standing over them and intimidating them. I mean keeping them in a bubble because you're afraid of what could possibly happen to them. You want to frustrate your child quickly? Then build this insulated bubble around them where they are never outside of your sight. Never outside of your sight. See, here's the problem. is that Well, if they're out of my sight, then something could happen. Okay, hold on, hold on. When they're in your sight, something could happen. You're frustrating your children by fear-based parenting. Another way we exasperate them is anger and discipline. That means usually we're, we're in emotional states when we're disciplining. So it has to do not with their behavior uh, or their sin. It has to do with the way it affects me. So as our emotions are involved in this, this discipline, it, you, um, anger and discipline almost always leads to overly harsh punishment. And, and there's frustration that comes with emotional discipline in this. It's so inconsistent. Because if you're in a good mood and little Johnny comes home and he dumps his Cheerios all over the floor, you're like, oh, Johnny, someday you're going to figure it out. But then the next day you come home from work and you're pretty ticked at the people at work and little Johnny dumps his Cheerios on the floor and you're like, why did you do it again? And poor Johnny's like, hold on a minute. Yesterday it was like, oh, they're there. And today it's nuclear. What just happened? It leads to the frustration of your children. Another way we exasperate our children is by our own arrogance and pride. Mom and dad, you should be the first one to apologize to your child when you've sinned. You want to frustrate your kid? You demand an apology from them when they sin, and you never apologize. Another way we exasperate our children is inconsistency. You see this in particular when it comes to going back to the obedience topic. Inconsistency in what we expect in obedience will drive your child nuts. Not exaggerate. So, so what happens when, when you get there, like, okay, now, Johnny, poor Johnny, I'm sorry. If Johnny's in here, man, I'm praying you have a good day, brother. Sorry. All right, so, um, Johnny, clean up your room. Johnny, I said clean up your room. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. Johnny, clean up your room. What you just did was you just taught your child that they don't need to obey you. They can wait to the fourth time. But how inconsistent is it to do that and then the next day be like, Johnny, clean up your room. That's it. No TV for a year. But wait, I'm supposed to be able to wait to the, after the count to three. Then I do it. But see, we're so inconsistent in first-time obedience. Moms and dads, that's on you. That's on you. You have programmed your child to wait until they see the vein pop instead of obeying as soon as it comes out of your mouth. Um, one of the, the, the dangers of preaching and telling stories and teaching is becoming the hero. I am not a hero in any shape of the word. I want to be very clear and fall on my sword. This was because of my hero wife, not because of me. I stink at the first-time obedience thing. Um, we have regular meetings. Well, not as regular as we should, I guess. I don't want to lie while I'm up here. We meet all the time. And she's going to be like, when do we meet about this? 
Um, <laughs> but we regularly talk to each other. How's that? That's pretty safe, right? We regularly talk, I promise. We talk regularly about um, how we're parenting and some of the things, hey, I don't know if you realize this or not, but this one's getting by. This one's getting by. And, and one of the things way back, Luke was just a pipsqueak. I mean, he might have been two and a half, three. I mean, he was, his body had almost grown into his head. Um, so, <laughs> so he was able to walk and run a little bit. He and I had gone to a bank for something. I don't even remember what it was, but we were coming out of the front door of the bank and there was a a parking lot here, and then on this side, the building came out, but then there was an exit for the bank over there. And we had, there's a parking spot on the other side of that little driveway thing, and we had come out of the bank, and we were walking towards our car, and he just, boom, took off. And he's running towards the edge of the building, getting ready to run to our car, which is just on the other side of the driveway, and he's, he gets away from me, and it takes me a second, because I'm, I'm slow, and, and it's like, well, 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 stop! And... Well, I mean, it was by God's grace that the kid obeyed first time that time. And he stopped. And no sooner than my echo had come out of my mouth and it stopped, a car came through going about 30. And I remember grabbing his hand and walking to the car like this. (laughs) There are matters of safety involved, mom and dad, and why we teach first-time obedience. But even more than that, it's a matter of integrity and a matter of not frustrating the heart of your child. We frustrate the heart of our child through favoritism. It's true. It happens in many families. Where if I get along better with one kid than I do another, then I tend to lean towards them more. We frustrate the hearts of our children through no positive celebration when they have a job that's been well done. Or we frustrate the hearts of our child when we celebrate like everything's a job well done. Neither are true. That leads to the next one. We frustrate the hearts of our children when we are child-centered. We've um, somehow fallen for the lie of our culture today and deceived ourselves into thinking that, that our lives need to be wrapped up in our children. That somehow, if, if we allow our lives to be wrapped and, and they become the nucleus of our family and everything revolves around our children, that, that that somehow develops in them a healthy understanding of what it means to be loved. It doesn't. What it does is it demonstrates to them that they are narcissistic, selfish people, and we wonder why the culture is going the way it's going. Do you want to develop a healthy understanding of what it means to be loved for your child? Do you? Then love your spouse. The greatest gift you can give to your children is to love the person God gave you as a spouse. The greatest security you can give to your children is not allowing them to become the center of everything you do. It's by loving your spouse. That's how God designed the family. We frustrate our children through injustice. This one, this one's notorious in our home. We, we tend to be like, all right, so, all right, uh, where are the kids? Where are the kids? Well, they're playing PS3. All right, time for bed. They're like, wait, hold on. I'm playing this game for 45 minutes right now. I am like on the, like two minutes away from winning it for the first time. Nope, first time obedience, bucko. Time for bed. Now, I'm not saying for everything, but, but there is cause at times for a five-minute warning. Hey, how much longer you got on that one? All right, five minutes, wrap it up. I mean, how would you feel if you were an hour and a half into an hour and 45-minute movie you've been looking forward to seeing, and an hour and a half somebody came in and said, oh, sorry, turning off the TV. Uh, Do I have to imagine what it looks like at the end? But 
we tend to do that to our children. That's a frustration that isn't necessary through injustice. We frustrate our children through their intolerance of their failures. This this goes back to fear-based parenting. We're trying to protect them and bubble them so they don't ever skin a knee or worse, so that they don't ever make a mistake. Um, The problem is that the character your child needs to grow and thrive and be successful in our culture is going to be achieved not by your wonderful parenting skills, but by through trial and error. They're going to make mistakes. You, you want them to make mistakes when they're younger. So let's be clear. Well, uh, the consequences of a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old messing something up, those consequences are pretty minimal, and rarely do they involve moral failures. But if you protect and bubble your kid until they're 17, 18, 19, then they begin making mistakes, and moral failures come in, and the consequences are far greater. So parenting allows these kids of ours to make non-moral mistakes and love them through it. Final one I'll mention is uh, we frustrate them through um, being indifferent to relationships with them. When's the last time you hung out with your kids? And I mean hung out. I don't mean went to their baseball game, went to their soccer game. I don't mean sat at the table, they did their homework. I mean hung out with them, did things that they like to do. Not like, oh, it's a special day, we're going to Disney. Everybody likes Disney, that doesn't count, okay? But when's the last time you, you hung out and tried to catch fireflies with your little one? When's the last time you sat down and tried to wrap your head around this science experiment your nerd son's trying to put together? I had one of those. You're welcome, Luke. I didn't call you a nerd, brother. I blamed the other one. (laughs) And it's like, the kid's in fourth grade and he's using terms that I never learned in high school. It's like, I got nothing. When's the last time you sat and just tried to understand the things that they love, even if you listen to them and you're like, I don't like this at all. When's the last time you worked to make sure they know that just because they're different than you doesn't mean you don't accept them. You still love them. Moms, dads, you do know it's okay for them to be different than you, right? Not okay for them to be different than God but it's okay for them to be different than you. And so that should be how we parent. So, I I mean, that was, if anything, that was a buckshot message, right? And and because of that, I I think there's many of us sitting here like, listen, this this shouldn't be that difficult. This should be easy. I mean, I love my wife. It should just come naturally. I love these little guys. This should come, okay, but, but, but why? Why would it be simple like that? Is it simple to shoot a jump shot? Does it take no practice, no failure? Is, is it simple to drive a car? No, it takes practice. Some of us need more than others. Is it simple to, to, to bake the perfect cheesecake? Absolutely not. It takes effort. Then, then why would it be simple for us to love our spouse or to parent our kids well? It's not simple. It's difficult, and you need to learn from your failures. You need to remember that victory and success in this, learning from your failures, it's, it's not about how pretty the process is. It's about being faithful as you walk through the process. Like um, Galatians 6 tells us, you're going to reap wonderful fruit if you continue to plant good seed and you don't faint and you don't give up. At the end, God will be faithful. 
and you'll reap where you planted. But, but even that isn't easy. That's um, terrifying. Terrifying to take God at his word sometimes, isn't it? It's terrifying to, to trust him. I mean, what, what if I yield to my husband and he, and he leads us the wrong way? What if I sacrifice everything for my wife and she's not appreciative? What if I just can't reach the heart of my kid? It just seems easier if I take some of the shortcuts. Psalm 126, I'm going to close this. Psalm 126 reminds us of this awesome picture. It's a picture of a farmer who's going out to his fields. And it says he's walking out with his bag of seed and he's planting the seed in his field. And the amazing thing is that he is sowing it as he is bawling. He's, he's sowing seed in tears. He's just reaching into the bag and throwing seed and just the tears. He just can't stop crying. Everything is tears as he tosses the seed. Everything is tears. You know why? Because that's his only seed. He's got nothing left at home. He's got nothing left in the storehouses. This is it. And if this seed doesn't take root, if this harvest doesn't come to fruition, his family is going to starve. And so as he's out there just throwing seed like, I have nothing else. It is now out of my hand, and what I need is for God to take over and to cause this to grow. Well, that's what it's like being in a family. You've got nothing. But you simply obey. It's not easy. But God's faithful. It's, it's faithful. And in fact, that psalm goes on to say that the one who, who weeps carrying the bag of seed, he'll come back with shouts of joy carrying his sheaves. He's coming back because God is faithful. So if you and I would just fix our eyes on Jesus and we would pursue him with everything we have, we would find him faithful. The problem is not with God's faithfulness. It's with your and my imperfect obedience. Our arrogance, our lack of trust, Um, are being carried away by human traditions. You want to see evidence of a people whose eyes aren't fixed on Jesus? Look at the homes. So this morning, it's not to beat anybody up. Um, Particularly those people who are sitting here right now feeling abundantly broken. But, more of us should be broken. More of us should submit and love and obey and not provoke with the, with the same tears of the farmer and sowing all that he has, trusting that God was going to do something marvelous with it. More of us should be broken. And if you're broken, then man, right where you're sitting, or, or even up here at one of the, the prayer benches, man, I'm going to encourage you to this, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Taste and see his goodness, his faithfulness. And and in the words of Jesus, after you've received the grace from God, go and sin no more. Seek him. Seek his face. May we repent and become fixed on Jesus as we pour into our daily relationships in our homes. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for patience. Thanks for love. Thanks for grace. Lord, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Father, for the way you speak. Thank you for your silence so that we can wait on you. 
Um, Lord, in, in these moments, we're, um, we're asking that you quiet hearts and calm us, and Father, that you would forgive us of our sinfulness. We're a people who forget. We're a people who try to take shortcuts. We're a people who question your faithfulness. We demonstrate that simply by our disobedient actions. So, Lord, would you be with each of us today? Be with the ones who are broken and feeling heavy-hearted right now because they feel like they just can't get any of it right. Lord, I pray that they would repent and find just forgiveness and faithfulness in you. Lord, I pray that you'd fill their eyes full of Christ. May they seek him and him alone. And Father, I pray that you would give them just a rich and rewarding time crying out to you. We love you. Amen.